Beloved congregation, have you ever had to find someone in a crowd or in a large open space? Children, maybe uh, once you were playing hide-and-go-seek with your friends and they're all scattered around and they're hiding in the bushes and around rocks and whatever they can find to hide in, and the game is dragging on, and you're, you're going around, and you, 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 you catch some, and the others, you simply don't know where they are. And you look here and there and everywhere, you can't find them. Or moms, maybe you're at Walmart, and you have to get a few things, and you bring your young child with you, and he just wants to go and look at the toy section, just for a little bit. Just wants to check out the toys, and you say, okay, that's fine, but don't go away. Don't run away. Don't leave my side. Don't, don't go too far away from me. And sure enough, you turn around and the child is gone. And you go up and down the aisles and you look for your child. Can't find him anywhere. What do you do? Well, you would do what anybody would do. You call out their name. Where are you? You would say. Where are you? In my congregation in Abbotsford, a number of weeks ago, I began a series of sermons which I have entitled Key Questions from the Bible. There's a lot of questions in the Bible. Uh, I actually have a book in my library, thankfully, that lists all the questions in the Bible, so I didn't have to go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And the book tells me that there are no less than 3,296 questions in the Bible. There's 2,274 in the Old Testament and 1,022 in the New Testament. Now, I have no intention, of course, of preparing a sermon on every single one of these questions because that would take many, many years. Instead, I've selected what I think are some of the most important ones, the most searching, the most, the most powerful questions. And questions are very powerful when you think about it. Some of these questions are posed by God. Still others are posed by ordinary people. But all of them are full of instruction and are of great significance. Certainly one of the most significant questions asked in the Bible is the question in our text, Genesis 3, verse 9. Now this is not the first question in the Bible. Children, do you know what the first question in the Bible is? It's also also in Genesis chapter 3, but it's a few verses earlier. It's when the devil, in the form of the serpent, came to Eve and said, has God really said that you should not eat of all the trees of the fruit of the garden? That's the first question in the Bible. But this question in verse 9 is the first question that is posed by God. And it's a very simple question. It consists of only three words. Where are you? That's the question. That's our text. So this question we want to turn with the help of the Lord this afternoon. So my theme is simply the question, where are you? And we'll see that this is, first of all, a purposeful question. And secondly, it is a gracious question, a purposeful question and a gracious question. 
This question in our text that was asked by God was posed by him probably not long after God created the world. We don't know how long. We don't know how long a span there was between the final day of creation and the fall of man into sin. Well, we can say this, that up until this point, everything had been going very, very well. God created the world in six days by the power of his word. He created everything in the world. He made man out of the dust of the earth in his own image. He planted a beautiful garden as a home for man, which we call the Garden of Eden. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and took out one of his ribs. And from that rib he made the woman and he brought her to the man as a helper and a companion to him. And Adam was kept busy every day, naming the animals in the garden, tending the garden and delighting in the wife that the Lord God had given him. Yes, everything was perfect. And then something happened, something terrible, something that would forever change the course of history, something that would plunge the world and everything in it into abject misery and poverty and bring it under the wrath and the condemnation of God. What was it? We read about it earlier in our text chapter. There we read how after God created the Garden of Eden, he planted two trees in the midst of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said to man, you can freely eat of all the trees of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. It was a test. It was a test to see if Adam would obey God. If he did not obey God, he would die. But if he did obey God, he would live forever. He would be granted permission to partake of the tree of life and live in, in perfect communion, uninterrupted communion with God forever and ever. Well, one day as Adam and Eve were walking in the vicinity of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the devil appeared in the form of a serpent. And he enticed Eve to partake of the tree, of the fruit of the tree. And he promised that if she did so, that she would become like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve believed him. She fell for the lie. We read in verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and ate and gave also to her husband with her, and he also ate. Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit. And at that moment, they experienced something that they had never experienced before. They experienced was it what, what it was like to sin, to rebel against God. What was that moment like? We don't know. Maybe at first it was exhilarating and exciting. But after a while, the reality began to sink in and they discovered that they were naked and they were ashamed. They never felt shame before. They didn't know what that was. 
And so they ran into the garden and they cut down fig leaves and, and they made coverings out of those fig leaves. And later that day, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the wording of the text in the Hebrew suggests that God did this more often. It was his habit to come down from heaven and to, to come down into the garden at the same time, in the same place. He would meet with Adam and, and Eve, and, and he would talk with Adam and Eve as, as a friend talks to a friend. And, and you can imagine God saying to Adam, Adam, what did you do today? What did you discover about this wonderful world that I made for you? And Adam would tell him. Adam would say to God, well, God, I saw this amazing animal that you made, and I, and I named him this because he has these characteristics and, and these qualities, and I discovered this amazing flower today that you made, and it's so glorious, oh God, I, I praise you for the things that you've done, and, 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 and so many things like that. And, and Adam and Eve, they, they, and, and God, they were like friends. And they enjoyed communion with each other. But this day was different. Instead of going out to meet God, we read in verse 8 that Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And there was God standing all alone. Adam and Eve were nowhere to be found. And so what does God do? Well, he does exactly what you and I would do in such a circumstance. He begins to call out to Adam, and he says, where are you? Where are you? Now, why did God ask that question? You ever think about that? Why did God call out for Adam? Why did God say, where are you? Doesn't God know everything? Sure, he knows everything. He knew, he knew exactly where Adam and Eve were. He knew the exact tree or bush where they were hiding. So why did he call out for them? Well, I believe he called out for them in order to convict them. Imagine, parents, you tell your young child... You have, a, you have a cookie jar on the countertop in the kitchen, and it's got freshly made cookies in there. You just baked them, and, and uh, you're standing there with your child in the kitchen. You have to go upstairs for a moment, and you say to your child, now listen, I've got to go upstairs for a second, but when I'm gone, don't take a cookie out of the cookie jar. Well, you child understands that, and you ask him to repeat it maybe, and what are you not supposed to do? The child says, I'm not supposed to take a cookie out of the cookie jar. So you go upstairs, and you do your thing, and a little while later, you come back downstairs, and um, well, what do you see? You see crumbs on the countertop and on the floor. You know exactly what happened. Now, at this point, you have two options. You can you can accuse the child and say, I thought I told you not to take a cookie out of the cookie jar. You disobeyed me. And now you must be punished. Or you can take a different approach, probably a better approach. And you can say to your child, hmm, I see these crumbs here. What did you do? 
I say this is the better approach. Why? Because when you ask your child what he did, what are you doing? You're appealing to his conscience. And you're giving him an opportunity to come clean, to own up to what he has done, and hopefully to confess that and to repent of it before you. And this is what's happening here. By calling to Adam, where are you? God is appealing to his conscience. He's he's putting Adam in a position where he's forced to admit that what he did was wrong and to confess it and repent of it. And I ask you this afternoon, what would you say to God if God came to you and asked you this question? Let me, let me put it differently. God is coming to you, to every one of you. And he's asking you the same question. Where are you? Where are you? He asks this question of those of you who are true believers. He asks you this afternoon, where are you? Where are you in terms of your relationship with God? How would you describe your relationship with God? Would you say it's close, alive, growing, vibrant? Would you be able to say in all honesty before God this afternoon that I love Him with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength, and all of my mind? Does that show itself on your life? Are you spending time with the Lord every day, reading His Word, praying? Are you putting Him first in your life? Are you seeking to honor Him in every aspect of your life? Is He your chief delight, your chief desire? Can you say with Asaph, as I said in congregational prayer, there is none upon earth that I desire besides Thee, O God. Is it true for you today? Where are you? Where are you? In terms of your relationship to God. Where are you in terms of your relationship with others? Where are you in terms of your relationship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ here in this congregation of Langley? Can you look across the aisle and look that person in the eye and say, I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. Can you do the same with the members of your family, your extended family? A brother or sister that you've been at odds with for so many years. Children, young people, what's your relationship like with your parents? Do you obey them? Do you love them? Do you respect them and honor them? Parents, what's your relationship like with your children? Do you sense they love you? Do you treat them fairly? Do you tell them that you love them? Where are you in relation to holiness? 
Are you actively putting sin to death in your life? Do you hate sin? Are you fleeing from sin? Are you striving by the grace and help of the Holy Spirit to keep the commandments of God and to live to Him and to His glory in everything, in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions especially? Are you striving for Christ-likeness? Are you striving for holiness? Or are you just content to coast along? So many people in the church today, especially churches like ours, which consist largely of people who have grown up going to church their whole life long, there's such a tendency today to just coast. The attitude seems to be more and more, well, as long as I'm saved, that's all that matters. I'm just over the threshold. At least I'm not going to hell. And, and that's good. But is there growth? Is there development? And holiness? Is there increasing victory over sin? Where are you? Where are you? And God asks this question not only of true believers, but he asks this question also of those of you who are not. Are there such people like that here in Langley? I don't know your heart. You know your heart. Are you truly converted to God? It's not difficult to know whether you are you just look for the fruit. Is there fruit in your life? Is there fruits of holiness, fruits of good works, fruits of love for God, fruits of love for his people, fruit of loving the word of God, the people of God? Where are you? It's especially to you that God seems to be saying in our text, why have you not come to me? I've given you everything. I formed you in my image. I have given you Christian parents and a Christian church. I've given you a Christian upbringing, a Christian education. I have given you the sign and seal of the covenant of grace in holy baptism. I promise to be your God. And I've adopted you as my covenant child. What more could I have done for you that I have not already done? And yet you have not come to me. You prefer to live in your sins. You prefer to live in and for the world. God comes to you. And he asks you, where are you? There are many people who, like Adam and Eve, are hiding from God. They're hiding behind various trees. I've known people in my ministry who hide behind the tree of man's inability. And they say, quite rightly, 
that there's nothing that we can do to earn our own salvation. Salvation is entirely the work of God. He is absolutely sovereign. And so, unless the Lord does something in my heart and in my life, well, I just have to sit and wait, I guess. There are people who hide behind the tree of election and they say, well, God has chosen who will be saved and who will not be saved and what am I to do about it? I can't, I can't inscribe my name in God's book of life. Others hide behind the tree of the world and they love the world. That's where their heart is. They love the people of the world, the friends of the world, the entertainment of the world, the values and the priorities of the world. They live for the world as though there's no tomorrow. They're hiding behind the tree of the world. And God comes to us in our text and He says, where are you? He says, get out from behind those trees. Get out from behind those bushes. Stop making excuses. Come and stand before me. Confess your guilt. Confess your backsliding. Confess your waywardness before me. And ask me to forgive you. And I will. This is what God delights to do. Congregation, he delights to forgive sins. And we truly repent before him. And so this question that God asks, it's a very purposeful question. The point of the question is to bring us to God. that We might stand before Him and say, Oh Lord, You know everything. You know what I've done. You know what lives in my heart. I confess it. Forgive me. Be gracious unto me. A purposeful question. But secondly... It is also a gracious question. Now, so far, you might not think so. So far, you might think that this text is a very searching question. It makes us feel uncomfortable. We wonder, where is the grace in a question like this? But believe me, grace shines through in this question. And it shines through in at least two ways. First of all, it shines through in the fact that God asked this question in the first place. Just think about it. God didn't have to ask this question. God, for that matter, didn't even have to come down. He didn't have to leave his throne in heaven and come down to earth, to the garden, in the first place. God would have been perfectly just knowing what had happened, seeing what Adam and Eve had done, he would have been perfectly just to remain on his throne in heaven and allow man to perish in his sins. There would have been no fault in God had he chosen to do that. But he doesn't. What does he do? He gets up from his throne and he comes down to this earth and he stands in the garden alone 
And he calls. Where are you? Where are you? That's grace. That's grace. Imagine had God not done that congregation. Imagine if God had simply remained where he was and did not come down to the garden and did not call after man. Where would we be? We'd be utterly without hope. No hope. We'd have to spend an everlasting eternity in hell. But God says, no, I will not let that happen. I will save at least some. And I will give to them my son. And I will work in their faith, in their hearts, faith that they may trust in Him and believe in Him and live for Him. That's what God does. And I say that is grace. And it is grace that God still calls after sinners today. It's grace that He is allowing you to hear this sermon. This text. Where are you? It's not just Pastor Schumann speaking this. It's not my words. I didn't write that. I didn't speak that. God did. And I'm preaching to you tonight from the very mouth of God, the words that He Himself spoke, and He calls earnestly, sincerely, Where are you? Where are you? It reminds me of the parable of the shepherd. You know, the shepherd has a hundred sheep, remember? One goes away, one goes lost. Sheep have a tendency to do that, and so what does the shepherd do? He doesn't just sit back and say, well, you know, that's just tough luck. You know, I've been slaving all this time trying to keep these sheep together, and that one sheep that's been so ornery lately, let him go. Let him be eaten by predators. I don't care anymore. No, he, he leaves the 99 in the wilderness to fend for themselves while he goes and searches for the one. For the one. That's the God whom we serve. He's a seeking God. And He's looking for you. And He's looking for me. And He asks earnestly, plaintively, Where are you? What a grace there is in this question. Spurgeon in a sermon on this text, he writes this. He says, Adam ought to have sought out his maker. He should have gone through the garden crying for his God. My God, my God, I have sinned against thee. Where art thou? But instead thereof, Adam flees from God. And he continues. He writes, the sinner comes not to God. God comes to him. 
It is not, my God, where art thou? But the first cry is the voice of grace. Sinner, where art thou? God comes to man. Man seeks not his God. Despite all the doctrines, Spurgeon says, which proud free will has manufactured, there has never been found from Adam's day until now a single instance in which the sinner first sought his God. God must first seek him. The sheep strays of itself, but it never returns to its fold unless sought by the great shepherd. It is human to err, it is divine to repent. Man can commit iniquity, but even to know that it is iniquity so as to feel the guilt of it is the gift of the grace of God. Oh, do you see the grace in this question, congregation? It's gracious in the fact that God even asks it. But secondly, the grace of God shines through in this question in the manner in which God asks this question. So not just the fact that he asked it, but also how he asked it. How do you think God asked this question? How could God have asked this question? You know, God could have come down from heaven with a flaming sword, with thunder and lightning, and an earthquake coming to judge man. He could have done that. He could have come with a word of rebuke. He could have said, Adam, what's your problem? What have you done? How could you have done this in light of everything that I have done for you? I made you. I formed you in my image. I gave you dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I've made a covenant with you. I communed with you. I regarded you as my friend. And I would have done much more besides that, but now you have ruined it all. Do you have any idea what you have done? He could have come to Adam with a determination to judge. He could have said to Adam, Adam, get over here right now and stand before me. Tell me what wickedness you have done that I may punish you. He could have done that. But he didn't. He came to him as he always had, softly, tenderly, unobtrusively, graciously. Again, I want to quote what Spurgeon says on this. He says, he comes walking. God was in no haste to smite the offender not flying upon him wings on the wings of wind, not hurrying with his fiery sword unsheathed, but walking in the garden. Spurgeon says, 
He comes to in the cool of the, of the day. Not in the dead of night. When the natural glooms of darkness might have increased the terrors of the criminal. Not in the heat of the day, lest he should imagine that God came in the heat of passion. Not in the early morning as, in, as if in haste to slay, but at the close of the day. For God is long-suffering, slow to anger, and of great mercy in the cool of the evening when the sun was setting upon Eden's last day of glory, when the dews began to weep for man's misery, when the gentle winds with breath of mercy breathed upon the hot cheek of fear. When earth was silent that man might meditate, and when heaven was lighting her evening lamps that man might have hope in darkness, then... And not till then, forth came the offended father. What does it tell us? It tells us that our God, whom we have so deeply offended by our sin and rebellion and stubbornness and backsliding, remains a God of grace. And he is a God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And he comes not to destroy, but to give life. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. And so the Lord comes and he says, come out, congregation. Come out from behind your trees and your bushes and come and stand before me now. Do it. Even now, as you're sitting there listening to this sermon, come before God. Tell him what you've done. Tell him the wickedness of your heart, the backsliding of your heart. Confess it all. He knows it all anyway. Don't hide anything from him, but confess it before him and plead for his mercy. This is what he wants. This is why he calls. Where are you? God called for Adam. How did Adam respond to this call? It's pretty pathetic, actually. Instead of coming to God and pouring out his heart, perhaps even with tears in his eyes. Adam stands before God. And what does he do? He, he makes excuses. For he says, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God says, well, how did you know you were naked? Did you eat of the tree which I commanded you? You should not eat. And at that moment... Adam had an open door, a golden opportunity to come clean with God, but he doesn't. He blames his wife Eve. He says, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me of the tree. And I ate. Ultimately, Adam was blaming God. The woman whom you gave me, God. And when, Eve, when God confronted Eve, Eve blamed the serpent. They missed a golden opportunity to come clean with God. Beloved, don't miss this 
golden opportunity to come clean with God. You don't know what tomorrow may bring. You don't know what tonight may bring. You don't know what, what's going to happen in the next hour. You could be killed on your way home. You say, oh, that's never going to happen. How do you know? Things like that do happen. The most unexpected times we can be taken away out of this life and then we'll have to stand before God. And then all the trees and the bushes, there'll be nothing to hide behind then and we'll stand before the judgment seat of God. And then we'll have to give an account. Don't waste, don't squander this opportunity to come clean with God. Or else, or else what? Or else the gates of heaven will be closed to you and the gates of hell will be opened and God will consign you to everlasting burnings and torment that will never, ever cease. Unless you come clean with him, confess your sin, and look to Christ as the only Savior from sin. You see, that's why God sent him into the world. So that sinners like us who have no pleading ground, who have no excuses, that we may hide behind him, not some tree of our own making, but that we may hide behind Christ. His perfect sacrifice on the cross and His perfect righteousness. That's, our only, that's the only way that we can stand before God and live to an everlasting eternity. And so seek Him. Seek to be found in Him. And you shall live. Amen.